Beauty for brokenness, hope for despair. Lord, in the suffering, this is our prayer. Bread for the children, justice, joy, peace. Sunrise to sunset, your kingdom increase. Shelter for fragile lives, cures for their ills. Work for the craftsmen, trade for their skills. Land for the dispossessed, rights for the weak, voices to plead the cause of those who can't speak. God of the poor, friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray, melt our cold hearts, the tears fall change our love from a spark to a flame. Refuge from cruel wars, havens from fear, cities for sanctuary, freedoms to share. His cross for the plain, God of the poor, friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray, melt our cold hearts, let tears fall like rain, come change our love from a spark to Oceans and streams Plundered and poisoned A future and dreams Lord, and our madness Carelessness, greed Make us content with The things that we need God of the poor Friend of the Welcome. It is a beautiful morning, and as we have done the last two Sunday mornings, we're planning to close our service by singing together outside. So uh, later on, I will again direct you to these doors, and you can pick up a song sheet, please, on your way out, and we'll close by singing out there. And then we are uh, meeting again this evening, 6 p.m., where we'll be continuing in Matthew's Gospel, but also sharing the Lord's Supper together. So I hope that you can join us for that. And then things are starting up again. And this Tuesday, one of the things that's starting up is the Loss and Grief Group. It will be meeting here at the church, 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning. And just a, a message from Twala to go 
with this announcement, she says, we're very happy to welcome newcomers as we realize that there are many in our congregation who have experienced grief and loss recently. So you are welcome on Tuesday even if you've never been before. And if you uh, want to contact Twala, uh, you could do that ahead of time also. We're going to begin by focusing on the God who knows all about our grief and loss and everything else about us. And he is the only one with the power to meet our needs, whatever they are. Isaiah chapter 40 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Our first song calls us to bless our great God. O oh my soul, arise and bless your maker.
God, the creator and our savior, the one whose strength never fails and whose compassion is new every morning. We turn to you again this morning. We bring our concerns, our burdens, and our successes, and we give them over to you. We bring the needs of our brothers and sisters also those who are tired and weary with illness, with worry, with grief. Will you give them strength and power to look up to you and receive all they need from you? For all of us this morning, as we give you our attention and our praise, will you renew our desire to live for you? until we see you face to face and then perfectly forever amen we're going to have a bible reading now where jesus sums up god's instruction to his people we're going to read from mark chapter 12 beginning to read at verse 28 mark chapter 12 verse 28 Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, 
You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Our next song is a prayer that God would lead us in this way of obedience we've just heard Jesus speaking about. Holy Father, rich in mercy. pick up at chapter 4 verse 44 and we'll read through to chapter 5 verse 21. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley near Beth Peor east of the Jordan in the land of Sihon king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan. This land extended from Aror on the rim of the Arnon Gorge to Mount Syrian, that is Hermon, and included all the Arabah east of the Jordan, as far as the Dead Sea below the slopes of Pisgah. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us. 
with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is God's word. As I said earlier, the way Moses introduces the Ten Commandments is significant. We find his introduction in chapter 4, verse 44, through to chapter 5, verse 5. And he tells us these ten words are words that keep on speaking. What we need to realize is this is not the first time the Ten Commandments appear in the Bible. They first appear back in Exodus chapter 20. That chapter records how just three months after the Lord rescued the Israelites from Egypt, he met them at Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb. And he gave them these ten words. That was 40 years ago, in terms of where we are now at the time of Deuteronomy. But look how the situation is described in chapter 4, verse 45. These are the stipulations, decrees, and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt 
and were in the valley near Beth Peor, east of the Jordan, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites. Beth Peor is where the Israelites are now, as Moses is speaking. But what happened to the 40 years between Egypt and Beth Peor? As it's described here, it's like those 40 years have vanished. It's like they don't matter. But in fact, the situation of the Israelites camped at Beth Peor is not the same as it was 40 years ago. For the Israelites were newly escaped slaves in the middle of the desert. Promised land must have been barely imaginable to them then. But those people are with just a few exceptions. And this new generation, well, they are experienced warriors. And they are within touching distance of the promised land. In fact, they can look across the River Jordan and see it. Their circumstances are very different from 40 years ago. But Moses is about to repeat the instructions God gave through him 40 years ago. The message is the instructions given 40 years ago haven't gone out of date. Yes, your circumstances have changed considerably. But these words from Mount Sinai keep on speaking. God's people don't need new words. They need to pay attention to the words they already have. The words for newly escaped slaves in the desert are also words for experienced warriors on the border of the promised land. So Moses is going to represent those words from Sinai, also known as Horeb. Look how he emphasizes that at the beginning of chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us with all of us who are alive here today. Now, we might want to object to that. How can Moses say the covenant at Horeb was made with these people on the banks of the Jordan? Surely it was made with their ancestors, literally their fathers. These people were small children at best, if they'd even been born at all 40 years ago. But Moses is not getting mixed up here. He's emphasizing the fact that the ten words given at Horeb are also God's words to these people. Those instructions were the way of life, the way of wisdom, and the way of relationship with God for the previous generation. And they are equally the way of life, the way of wisdom, and the way of relationship for this generation. This generation doesn't need new words from God. The ten words given at Horeb are still speaking with the same divine authority. This generation needs to hear, learn, and follow the words from Horeb. And today, 
It's true that you and I live in circumstances that are very different from both the Israelites at Horeb and the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan. But these 10 words are still speaking today. As God's people today, we need to be equally committed to hearing, learning, and following these words today. That was certainly what Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught. See, for example, the second part of Luke chapter 18 and Romans 13 and the start of Ephesians chapter 6. Jesus and Paul were in no doubt these 10 words from Horeb still come to us with God's authority. But we also need to be aware of something else. What Moses does is, after repeating the 10 words from Horeb, in the rest of this book, he goes on to apply them to the specific situation of these people who are about to enter the promised land. The instruction in the rest of the book shows these particular Israelites how to live out the Ten Commandments in their time and their place. Understanding that will help us when we come in later chapters to instruction about war, instruction about caring for your oxen, and instruction about how to look after guests when they take a deck chair up onto your roof. All of that stuff is applying the Ten Commandments to specific circumstances for specific people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that not all of that application fits in our situation. But as we go on to see that application, we get a lot of help with our own responsibility to apply these commandments to our own situation. But that application starts with the realization that these Ten Commandments are not out of date. They are words that keep on speaking. They must be heard, learnt, and followed by each new generation. But we need to notice something else about these words, and we need to notice it very carefully. They are words for rescued people. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 5, these words introduce the commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and they introduce them again here. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. One of the main misunderstandings of the Ten Commandments comes when people ignore this introduction. Because without this introduction, it is possible to think these commandments are the way to earn God's love and forgiveness. Maybe if I do these well... God will accept me. But we cannot make that mistake if we read this introduction. Because this introduction tells us these ten words are for people who already belong to the Lord. They are for the Lord's freed people. And that's why in the New Testament, James calls this law the law of liberty. These commandments were never intended as a way to get in with God. They're for men and women who've already experienced God's salvation. 
Obedience to these commands is a response to salvation. It is not a way to earn salvation. Last week we saw how the exodus from Egypt was the Old Testament event where God displayed his saving love. That rescue was the prototype for Jesus' work on the cross. That's where God showed his saving love in a supreme way. So whether we're talking about Old Testament Israelites or New Testament Christians, these commands are for people already in a saving relationship with the Lord. They're not the way to relationship. They are the way of relationship. This is the way of life for those who have received life from the Lord. In the Old Testament, that new life came through deliverance from Egypt and its slavery. For you and me today, new life comes as we trust in Jesus' death on the cross. And we receive deliverance from slavery to sin and death. And then, as rescued people, we hear, learn, and follow these commands for what they are. They're words of wisdom from our Creator and Savior. Showing his rescued people how to live in his world. One of the best simple statements of this comes from a Puritan called Samuel Bolton. He says, The law sends us to the gospel to learn how to be saved. Because the law cannot save you. And the gospel sends us back to the law to learn how to live. The law sends us to the gospel to learn how to be saved because the law cannot save you. And the gospel sends us back to the law to learn how to live. That is how the New Testament views it. It's certainly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said the law is for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. To use Paul's words in another place, obedience to these commands is how we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We do that as we hear, learn, and follow these commands. And of course, we could spend a week on each one of these. That would be useful. But there are two reasons why we're not going to do that. First of all, Steve did that not so long ago, and I refer you to the website for that very helpful series. But the other reason we're not going to spend a week on each of these is because in the rest of Deuteronomy, Moses himself is going to give us his own sermon series on the Ten Commandments. I mentioned earlier the other decrees and laws in the book apply these commandments to the life of Israel. And that application will help us as we make our own application in our situation. So this morning we're going to look at the ten words as a whole, in a lump if you like. In fact, there turns out to be two lumps. Love God and love others. That's how Jesus summed up the law. We saw that in Mark 12 earlier. 
But what we also want to notice is this is not just about me as an individual loving God and loving others. These 10 words are addressed to a people, a community. The word we've used in previous weeks is a brotherhood. That's what Israel was called to be. Not a bunch of individuals all doing their own thing, but a people who worshipped and served God together. Shoulder to shoulder. That's what the church, the people of God today, is called to. Our calling is to love God together from the heart. And love others together from the heart. Our first calling is to love God together from the heart. We'll see that in both of these Our service to God is to come from the heart. But look at the commands 1 to 3, starting with the first command in verse 7. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he does not mean it's okay to have a few gods just as long as I'm top of your list. No, as the NIV footnote explains to us, the point is, you shall have no other gods besides me. I'm to be the only one on your list. Last week we spent our whole time on the second commandment, forbidding idolatry. Moses dealt with it in chapter 4. But as we read this commandment again, look how the commandment against idolatry ends here. Begins in verse 8. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We heard about God's jealousy last week. And we noticed it's the entirely appropriate commitment God has to protect and preserve his relationship with his people. Like any good spouse, God will not sit back carelessly while his people misplace their devotion. When they treat things that are not God as if they are God. And in our passage last week, God said what he would do if Israel embraced idolatry. Eventually, he would scatter them among the peoples. The Israelites would lose their land. And they would find themselves experiencing what life is like with only their new gods to care for them. It would be miserable. And God went on to say that in his mercy... When those scattered Israelites searched for him, they would find him. He would not forget his covenant. His mercy was always available. But think for a moment what all that meant. It meant the sin of one generation in Israel would impact future generations. That was just unavoidable. In fact, it played out that way in Israel's history. They did embrace idolatry, 
their children followed in their footsteps. And after hundreds of years of that, after incredible patience on the Lord's part, the Israelites were eventually scattered among the peoples because of their idolatry. They were taken away into exile. So the parents became idol worshippers. Their children followed their rotten example. And their children and grandchildren suffered the impact of their parents' and grandparents' idolatry. They shared in both their parents' sin and in the consequences of that sin. That is how we're to understand what God says here in verse 9 about the children being punished for the sin of the parents. This is not a command about how Israel's legal system is to work. Later in this book, the law will say, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. That is how individual cases were to be dealt with. But what God is talking about here is the simple fact that sin has messy and long-term consequences. So does the punishment of sin. There is no such thing ever as sin that doesn't harm anyone else. And there's no such thing as punishment for sin that doesn't affect anyone else. The idolaters in Israel were setting a sinful path for their children and grandchildren to follow. And when God brought punishment on all that sin by sending Israel into exile, that punishment affected their children and grandchildren. Let's think about that when we decide to sin ourselves. It will impact those around us. Often by setting a sinful pattern which they will follow. So for example, if I live for money, or if I spend my time criticizing others, that will influence my family to do the same. My false gods may well become theirs. And let's think about this too. If we ever pray for God to bring judgment on certain people, maybe a corrupt government or an evil individual, it may be right to pray for judgment, but judgment falling on evil people will affect those around them too often in unavoidably painful ways. It has wide, wide ripples because of the interconnectedness of everything in this life. So just to repeat, verse 9 is not a principle about how legal systems are to work. It's a simple statement of reality. Sin brings consequences and not just for the person who first does the sin. That's why God's people are to see themselves as a brotherhood and commit to love God together. 
Because the effects of that are so much greater than the effects of sin. Verse 9 spoke about the consequences of sin reaching for three or four generations. But look how verse 10 says, loving the Lord and keeping his commandments impacts a thousand generations. The point is that committing to turn from sin and give God his rightful place and obey his commands, that leads to experiences of his love that are more impactful and far-reaching than the effects of sin. In fact, there's almost no comparison. Three to four generations for one versus a thousand for the other. The ripples of our obedience will go on and on and on in ways we can't predict or imagine. To see an example of that, we just have to look at the early church in the book of Acts. Those first Christians were just a tiny minority. And yet within just a few years, their enemies could describe them as men and women who had turned the world upside down. And today, 2,000 years later, here we are experiencing God's love and salvation because those first Christians had the commitment to stand up in a culture of many gods and say boldly, there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Isn't the church of Jesus Christ the prime example of the far-reaching consequences when God's people commit to love God together as a brotherhood? The effects of that are beyond what we could calculate. If the impact of sin is far-reaching, the impact of loving and obeying God reaches further than we can measure. And love and obedience means our worship of God will be worship that involves not just our words, but our hearts as well. I think that's what the third commandment is about. Verse 11 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. A literal translation of that first line would be, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in an empty way. And maybe we mainly equate that with using the Lord's name as a swear word. But it goes much deeper than that. This is a warning not to settle for religious Can't, C-A-N-T. Can't is religious talk that's insincere. It's just meaningless words we say. Pious platitudes that we spout off without really even thinking about what we're saying. That is using the Lord's name in an empty way. 
And it's what God complained about through the prophet Isaiah when he said about a later generation of Israelites, these people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Those people were saying religious things. They had the right words, but it was just cant. Insincere talk that was not coming from their heart. If you and I are going to love God together, let's commit to considering what we say about him. And making sure that when we speak about God and to God, our hearts are involved, not just our lips. And let's commit to worshiping him as one body. That's essentially what the fourth command is about in verse, beginning in verse 12. Now Christians disagree about how exactly the Sabbath applies or doesn't apply today. But I think all Christians can agree on this. The Old Testament Sabbath was treated as a festival of worship. At the start of verse 12, the word observe is the word used of other religious festivals in the Israelite calendar. So the rest taken on the Sabbath was rest with a purpose. It was not just a morose day of not being allowed to do anything. It was a day off normal work to celebrate the Lord's goodness and his salvation. So as I say, we could debate back and forth about how exactly the Sabbath applies today. But we can agree, surely, we have even more reason than Israel did to take time out each week for a celebration of our great God. And notice how this is something the whole brotherhood is to do. Verse 14 says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Even the animals were to be considered. This was given to a farming culture where the animals would have appreciated a day off just as much as the farmer did. And this concern with making sure that others are able to rest, it shows the fourth commandment is like a hinge. It connects the call to love God with the call to love others together from the heart. We are not loving others if we're abusing them or taking advantage of them or oppressing them. And the Sabbath command then is both about celebrating God's goodness and it leads the way into calling us to treat those around us fairly and honorably. Letting those we are responsible for have a chance to rest. And that example of loving others leads into the example of honoring our parents in verse 16. Not thinking lightly of them, but recognizing their worth. 
and treating them accordingly, both when we're at home and still under their authority, and also when they're older and not able to care for themselves as they used to be. All of this has a family, community feel to it. We honor God by loving others together. That community emphasis carries on in verses 17 to 21. In the original, these last commands are all linked by and. They're really just like bullet points here. But they will all be developed later in the book. Murder is taking life in a lawless way. Adultery is an act that explodes marriage and family. Stealing and slandering or bringing false charges against a neighbor. Those are other ways of attacking those around us. The point is, whatever goes on in the wider society, God's people will not live like that. We will not be involved in those destructive ways of dealing with others. And we will watch our hearts very, very carefully. In verse 21, the tenth commandment is about the state of our heart. It forbids coveting and setting our desire on people or things that are not ours. If we allow those kind of desires to take root in our hearts, if we don't deal with them, those inward desires will lead in the end to the outward things mentioned in verses 17 to 20. Murder, adultery, stealing and slander all originate in the heart. So the tenth commandment is a kind of parallel to the third commandment that we saw back in verse 11. There we saw that True love for God starts in the heart. Instead of being satisfied with empty words about God, we're to give him worship that is the overflow of our hearts. And here in verse 21, the point is, true love for others starts in the heart too. As we refuse to set our desire on what others have, whether that's their possessions or their position, or their popularity. As we refuse to tolerate covetousness in our hearts, we will be able to treat others in loving ways rather than in destructive ways. And all of this, the New Testament says, is the law of liberty. Loving God and loving others is the way of life. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of relationship with God. It is not an outdated approach to life. It's the only way to live well in God's world. And as God's rescued people, it is our privilege to pursue this life. Not out of fear, in case we fall short, or we don't make the grade. No, we can pursue this life 
in the freedom of knowing we have been saved. This is what we were saved for. On the cross, Jesus Christ made the grade for us. And now the law of liberty leads us as we live in response to what Jesus has done for us. This is a life we live together as a brotherhood. Supporting and encouraging one another as we hear, learn, and follow these words that keep on speaking. One way we can support and encourage one another is by singing together. Praising God together for his goodness and asking God together for his help. We're going to do that now as we move outside, picking up a song sheet on your way, and we'll sing together in response to these words from God. Thank you. 